the end of the Omicron wave. By the time we get to spring, we're going to be in a very different place, I hope. What the province says about restrictions coming off and the status of vaccines for younger children. Crying foul. The players want to play. The players want to play in front of their family. They want to play in front of their school. They want to play for a provincial championship. Schools upset about sports tournament cancellations. And Vancouver 2030. The first lead Indigenous Games in the world would be something that we're excited about and wanted to explore. The First Nations-led attempt to recapture the glory of the Olympic Games. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off this week. BC is watching developments in the U.S. very closely, with Pfizer expected to get approval for its vaccine in children under 5 by the end of the month. Here in BC, the province is stepping up protection for teenagers, but seems further behind on approval for younger ones. Richard Zussman has those details and when we'll know more about an easing of restrictions. They have been waiting, those 12 to 17 not yet eligible to get a booster shot in BC, until now. We will be sending invites to all 12 to 17 year olds uh, with information on the benefits and risks of boosters. British Columbia updating its plan Tuesday to match guidance from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. Those 12 to 17 who are immunocompromised or at greater risk of severe COVID-19 illness are being pushed to get the booster six months after the second shot. For the rest of the group, it's optional. If you're, um, um, you know, your 12 to 17 year old is healthy, um, it's worth having that one-on-one -on -one discussion to see, hey, is this something that my child needs right now? A group that has waited even longer, kids under five. Now there's movement there as well. The FDA in the United States expects Pfizer's vaccine to be available to those older than six months by the end of February. We know that it can cause severe illness in young ones. So it is important that we have a vaccine that can protect, especially those highest risk children. Health Canada will still need to review Pfizer's data before the vaccine is approved in this country, but Canada has trailed behind the United States throughout the pandemic in terms of vaccine approvals. I don't think it will happen in the short term, um, but I do expect that as soon as Pfizer gets the more detailed data, they will submit it. The progression on vaccine coming while BC also progresses on easing restrictions. Some measures expected to be scaled back in a few weeks, but others will remain. There's some things that we know are, are working and give people the ability to do um, higher risk activities more safely, things like the BC vaccine card. What hasn't been determined is whether restrictions could also come back. Dr. Henry alluding to a milder spring and summer, with the return of COVID anticipated for next fall. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Here is a look at the latest COVID-19 numbers. We have 1,035 people in hospital. 139 of those patients are in the ICU. Nine more people have died from complications of COVID-19. We have 28,302 active cases right now, and that includes 1,236 new infections. We'll bring in Keith Baldry once again, and Keith, health officials also gave us a more detailed look at hospitalizations today, and really the suspicions about how Omicron compares with the Delta variant mm -hmm. seem to be playing out. 
Yeah, very encouraging, actually, Chris. So they ex public health officials examined hundreds of cases in December and January. Uh, again, Omicron really uh, arriving on the scene in mid-December in large numbers. So Delta was the dominant for, for uh, most of that, to about half that time period. But then Omicron right now is basically 95% of the cases. And the data shows how much more severe uh, uh, illness the Delta variant is. Take a look. Orange is, is Delta. Seven days average or median stay in hospital versus four days for Omicron. Almost triple or, or four times the amount of hospitalization rates in terms of proportion from Delta to, to Omicron. And again, the, the death rate is significantly higher. And the ICU cases particularly higher on a proportional basis. Delta has put more people in hospital on a proportional basis than Omicron, even though there's so much more Omicron out there. Dr. Henry also pointed out today that the studies show that there's so many people in hospital right now who have tested positive, positive for COVID-19, 44% of the cases, who went into hospital not feeling anything with COVID-19. They're there to get other health care treatment, particularly young people. Here's Dr. Henry. Today, we have far more people in hospital than we've ever had. And many of those people, as much as 60 or 70 percent now, especially younger people, are there for other reasons and they've tested positive. And so what this tells us is this is um, really important. The level of immunity that we have in our community has protected our health care system at this most critical time, even when we've had the numbers of people who needed that hospital care. Another clue that our hospitalization rate may have actually peaked, Chris, is today the number of people in hospital over yesterday is just 41 more. That's the lowest number since going back to January 5th. We've been averaging 100 people a day in hospital. Now it's down below 50. It's one day. Hopefully it's a similar trend tomorrow. But that's very encouraging. It could mean that our hospitalizations have peaked. All right. Let's hope so. Keith, thanks very much. Frustration still exists within BC's school system, even with those COVID numbers, at what some say are contradictory pandemic restrictions for sports. As Kamal Karamali reports, critics can't understand why students can now compete in tournaments outside of school, but the education ministry still won't allow tournaments in the school system. The GW Graham Grizzlies, they will storm the court. These are the moments players on the GW Graham High School basketball team miss the most. Winning it all in 2020, right before the pandemic hit. Now, many left instead practicing their skills at a pickup game. Oh yeah, turn the camera on. It's been pretty frustrating because we've had lots, we had lots of big tournaments scheduled and lots of big games. We're gonna play the top teams. On Tuesday, the province began allowing club and community youth sports tournaments outside of schools to resume. But tournaments inside schools are still on a timeout. Why are we hand tying the, the schools? The same athletes, can play in a community and pay to play in a tournament, why are these st students not allowed to put on their school uniform and go play in tournaments? The province says schools can play each other in single games with COVID restrictions, but major provincial tournaments still won't be allowed while it looks into creating a safer space for students to play. It is things like looking at the safety plans that we have that are specific to schools and to school environments around spacing around trying to minimize crowding. It said school tournaments are still a no-go partially because of the late start to the school year. We've been back at school for three weeks. We have extraordinary work happening across the uh, across some schools across the province to ensure that we have learning continuity and that we're keeping classrooms open. But these students say time is of the essence. Each day gone is a game missed 
and a chance to hone their skills for the future. It hurts the um, opportunity for colleges and universities to see us perform in front of them and in front of our fans. With the clock winding down, the ball is now left in the province's court. The Ministry of Education is set to meet with K-12 stakeholders this week to discuss a safety plan for school sports tournaments. Announcement happening, quote, in the coming days. Kamal Kramali, Global News. The current clerk of the B.C. legislature was on the stand as a witness again today at the fraud and breach of trust trial of the former clerk, Craig James. As Grace Key reports, some of the questioning focused on a controversial retirement benefit paid to James. Kate Ryan Lloyd received a similar benefit, but to a lesser amount than the $258,000 that James received. And even though she was advised that she could keep it, she said she returned it because she felt uncomfortable. Defense pointed out that she got the payment February 2012, repaid it about a year later, nine days before a scathing report from the Auditor General. Defense pointing out her husband works for the AG's office, saying, you received advice due to your links to the office of the Auditor General that effectively the train was on the tracks, you should get out of the way. Absolutely not, replied Ryan Lloyd, adding her husband was explicitly excluded from any involvement with the Legislative Assembly. Defense also went into detail about who's responsible for expense claims and what happens if there are any concerns about expenses. And at the end of the day, James's expenses were approved and signed off on. But Crown pointed out that the role of the executive financial officer reports to and is fully accountable to the clerk of the Legislative Assembly, and that would have been James. Purchases made while on business travel have also been called into question. James's executive assistant at the time testified she never saw the items handed out as official gifts, but did see some of the items on display in the office. She also recalled only once in the five years in question that an expense was called into question by the financial services branch. The former facilities manager will be continuing with his testimony on Wednesday, and he's expected to be talking about the woodcutter and trailer. In Vancouver, Grace Key, Global News. Turning to the weather now, and tomorrow's commute could be unpredictable given the risk of snow at lower elevations. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with the details. And Christy, we've got some idea where some of this snow is expected to fall. Yes, yeah, so it's going to move in from the northwest, Chris. So northern Vancouver Island will start to see it overnight. For Metro Vancouver, I am expecting it during the morning commute, so likely impacting. Now, we're not expecting a ton of snowfall, two to six centimeters. In fact, some areas near the water may only see rain, as always is the case around here. But here's a look. So tomorrow morning, yes, impacting the morning commute. Not likely in areas like Victoria, where you are expecting rainfall. In the afternoon, we are expecting a transition to rain, but that transition, Chris, may not happen until late afternoon or towards the evening hours. So there is a chance that that afternoon commute could be impacted also. All right. As soon as I'm going home and a lot of other people too. Thanks very much, Christy. Well, First Nations at the head of the table. The group getting organized to bring the Winter Olympics back to the West Coast. Why everyone could benefit and the big support they got today. That's next on the News Hour. A John Horgan sighting celebrating Lunar New Year as the Premier comes back from cancer treatment. What he says about it later. And Horgan isn't the only one celebrating the meaning behind Boba Grizz and why the retro basketball gear is such a huge seller. Those stories in a moment. But first, the bid to bring back the Winter Olympics to Vancouver and Whistler in 2030 is getting a major boost. 
The plan is being spearheaded by four First Nations, and as Ted Chernecki reports, they now have the organizational and financial backing of the Canadian Olympic and Paralympic committees. A new day. This was the video that helped Vancouver win the 2010 Olympics back in 2002. Me was everyone, with each ethnic group awarded a few seconds to get the multicultural message across. First Nations were barely seen. That would change should Vancouver Whistler host the 2030 Winter Olympics. Unlike uh, 2010, where uh, Indigenous partners are brought in kind of halfway through the process, uh, the four host nations, Musqueam, Squamish, uh, Tsleil-Waututh and Lillooet, are the foundation of, of this exploration. Hereditary chief in our community always says reconciliation. And I think when you say, when you reflect on the calls to action, it's, it's huge. But we're included. We're at the table. It's being referred to as the Reconciliation Games. Never been done before in IOC history. First Nations getting the biggest voice in a worldwide event. And today's announcement that all involved, including the Canadian Olympic Committee, will start looking at specific details of a potential bid is big news. But for the mayor... It has to be about reconciliation first. The key to this whole process is this is a, a reconciliation Olympic bid. When you look at the possible costs of it, but also the ability for all parties, governments, local, municipal, national, First Nations, all coming together on a project that really could be a global model for inclusivity. You may recall security costs in 2010 were first estimated at $175 million, but ballooned to somewhere around $1 billion. Ottawa claims its bill alone was $686 million. Where would you house the athletes? That Olympic village that ended up costing taxpayers about $100 million is full. Those are big details that need to be worked out, but hey, they won't have to build a rapid transit line from the airport or a highway to Whistler. The COC and the International Olympic Committee has changed their approach, so they're trying to use now as many existing facilities as possible. So it is possible there wouldn't be a single uh, there wouldn't be a single new venue built uh, to host these games, which, which would dramatically reduce costs. The city of we might know as early as this fall if, in fact, the group will bid on the 2030 games. Ted Chernecki, Global News. A group of Indigenous delegates from across Canada has a new date for its trip to the Vatican and a meeting with Pope Francis. The December trip was cancelled by the pandemic, and as Kylie Stanton reports, the group will now pressure the Pope to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in the residential school system. They're raising their voices, ready to be heard. And soon, Pope Francis will be the one listening. With this new secure date, I think it really shows their commitment to this meeting and also a commitment to working together. The visit to the Vatican, originally planned for December, was postponed due to the Omicron surge. But there were no plans in place to reschedule until now. A group of 30 Indigenous delegates from across Canada is set to meet with the Pope and Catholic leaders on March 28th to April 1st. Five days, one goal. We're hoping for an apology, and that's what I think is, is our expectation going. It would be a major step on the healing journey for many residential school survivors who've been forced to revisit their trauma with the discovery of thousands of unmarked burial sites. And while Catholic entities have apologized for its involvement with the system, the Roman Catholic Church as a whole has yet to take that step. It's about closure, the healing, the trauma, the pain and suffering uh, of years that was inflicted on our people and, and how they survived, I don't know. 
Pope Francis has been invited to Canada to see it firsthand, to meet the survivors, see the grounds of the unmarked burial sites, release school attendance records, and act on its legal and moral obligations. And while no date has been confirmed, the hope is the trip to the Vatican will help lay the groundwork. There is a responsibility and accountability that the church has to uphold. That includes a lot of things. That's financial support that the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops continuing to work with our communities. In a joint statement with the organizations representing the Indigenous delegation, the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops said, we remain committed to walking toward healing and reconciliation and very much look forward to the opportunity for Indigenous elders, knowledge keepers, residential school survivors and youth to meet with Pope Francis. It's a long time coming. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Still ahead, an airlift for animals. The massive plane that just arrived in Vancouver, once abandoned in Afghanistan, the rescue effort to bring all these pets back. And the urgent search for a BC father and his two daughters. Finally down to one problem here, eastbound on Highway 1 to the Portman Bridge. It's a stall just at the west end in the left lane. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above the Portman Bridge. RCMP are asking for some help to locate a wanted salmon arm man and his two teenage daughters, Caleb Gerbrandt. 13-year-old Avery and 14-year-old Aaliyah haven't been seen since January 21st. They're believed to be traveling in a vehicle like this, a 2006 gray Dodge Grand Caravan with BC license plate NE961N and could be in Metro Vancouver or on Vancouver Island. Gerberant was recently charged with sexual interference and sexual assault on a minor, and the girls are supposed to be staying with their grandparents in Salmon Arm. Gerbrandt is now in breach of his release conditions and is believed to be evading police. So if you see Caleb Gerbrandt or his vehicle or the girls, call police. A new consumer debt report reveals more Canadians are struggling to pay their bills as the pandemic lingers. Close to 40% owe at least $10,000 in unsecured debt. Consumer Matters reporter Andrew joins us now with some tips on how to manage. Anne. Thanks, Chris. In a survey of more than 1,000 Canadians from the Angus Reid Forum, the nonprofit Credit Counseling Society found two-thirds have non-mortgage debt, with one in three finding it hard to make minimum payments or less, and that financial pressure is made worse by the stigma felt around reaching out for help. Now, when asked about their financial situation now versus the beginning of the pandemic, 31% of those surveyed said they feel worse, 28% feel better, while 41% feel about the same. For the one-third who found themselves worse off, 38% rank spending more on essentials like housing, food and transportation as the number one reason. 29% blame job loss or employment instability. 13% cited increases in debt. 8% noted unexpected emergency expenses, while 3% rank spending more on non-essentials like entertainment, dining out and travel as the top reason. 65% of Canadians are carrying non-mortgage debt, 39% of them owe at least $10,000, and 42% say they'd wait until their monthly payments exceeded $1,000 before reaching out for help. 
it's concerning because it seems like um, we have a habit right now of waiting till um, things are almost becoming untenable until we're unable to meet our, our obligations before we try to do something and, and ask for help. You don't want to wait till um, you know the slant landslide hits you. You're not alone, and uh, debt is all around us. It does not discriminate, and there really is nothing to be embarrassed about. Chan also says feelings of stress and anxiety over money will only get worse and recommends reaching out to someone you trust or a professional for help with your financial situation. The Credit Counseling Society offers free, no obligation consultations and education on how to manage personal debt. The Credit Counseling Society also says curbing discretionary spending like cutting back on vacations, restaurant meals or movies is one way to regain control of your finances. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks very much, Jan. UBC is marking Black History Month with a new scholarship program. Hearing how they had a scholarship just for Black Canadians was really important to me. I grew up with a lot of... Black Canadian students at either the Vancouver or Okanagan campus can access a number of one-time or renewable rewards of up to $80,000. The Beyond Tomorrow Scholars Program also aims to build community among black students through events and panel sessions. The people behind the program say it can create a long-term impact by addressing systemic inequity and racism. Black students are faced with various systemic inequity, access and injustice, both within community and as well as access to post-secondary. The Beyond Tomorrow Scholars Program is a meaningful step in addressing the systemic inequity, access and injustice that is faced. UBC is encouraging Canadian students who identify as black to apply for the grant. And students can find more details on the Beyond Tomorrow Scholars UBC webpage. Up next, saved by surgery. His back has got worse since November. A BC teenager finally gets his spine fixed and says it wouldn't have happened without going public. And a reckoning for the federal conservative party and why leader Aaron O'Toole says bring it on. Traffic is nice and steady over here now at the Alex Fraser Bridge both ways, but do keep in mind there is some overnight maintenance and resulting lane closures. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Premier John Horgan rang in the year of the tiger outside the legislature today. It's Horgan's first public appearance since completing radiation treatment for throat cancer. Wearing a special New Year's jacket and scarf, Horgan says he lost about 25 pounds during treatment and can't grow a beard anymore, but is generally feeling pretty good. I feel great. Like, um, I get tired uh, around supper time, and I'm not eating. Like uh, still hard swallowing. Yeah. But, uh, Sound good. Yeah, well, there was only a few days where I couldn't talk. Oh. And Ellie will tell you Ellie, that was a great relief. <laughs> Horgan says he's starting the year of the tiger with a positive outlook for the future and wants to bring that enthusiasm back to his work as Premier. Good to see you recovering, Premier Horgan. Now, tomorrow morning, Conservative MPs will vote whether or not to replace leader Aaron O'Toole. 
O'Toole is facing a revolt by a third of his MPs who aren't happy with the position he's taken on a number of issues. Global's Kyle Benning has more on the divide and O'Toole's future. When is life getting back to normal, Mr. Speaker? Life might be looking a little different for Aaron O'Toole sooner than he might have hoped. Conservative Party MPs will vote on whether they still want him leading the opposition. This coming after a review into how the party fared in the 2021 election. I'm responsible for the loss. And I want to make sure that we gain the confidence of more Canadians. Last week, O'Toole acknowledged faults during the campaign. But now, about three dozen Conservative MPs have triggered a vote to see whether he will remain as leader. He's in a no-win situation. Um, So I don't know why he doesn't just step down now instead of going through the formality of this. O'Toole says he will fight to hold his position. In a tweet, he says that he will accept the result of Wednesday's vote, but those who signed the petition asking for a change in leadership must live with it as well. We're not seeing what we need to from the leadership right now, Uh, but I think when you have leadership uh, with with vision that unites people, uh, that we're in a very strong uh, position going forward. Political analysts say O'Toole's days as leader may be numbered given his handling of the truck convoy, last year's election loss, and the growing frustration this party. There's only so long that the party can tolerate this kind of dissent internally. He's been trying to stamp it out since the election and it hasn't worked. The MPs who signed the petition say they have more than enough votes on side to force a change in leadership. Kyle Benning, Global News. A follow-up now to a story we told you about last week. A Fort St. John teenager whose badly needed surgery had been cancelled four times in six weeks. Tonight, four days after 15-year-old Devin Gallant finally got the surgery, his family says they don't think it ever would have happened had they not gone public. The kid's a fighter. He sure is. It may have taken a few tries, but Devin Gallant finally had the surgery he needed to help straighten his spine. The surgery, Friday. Saturday, the teen celebrated his 15th birthday, struggling to do the physio he needs to get better. Monday, he was playing video games. The next 48 hours to the next week is um, literally it's day by day. Gallant has type 3 spinal muscular atrophy, a degenerative disease that leaves people without the strength to perform even the basic functions. Due to COVID surgery delays, Devin's procedure was scrubbed four times, twice the morning of. Even since like November, when Devin was here for his pre-op, his back has got worse. So if they didn't do the surgery... We could be looking at Devin in a hospital bed for a different reason, not recovering, but struggling. The surgery, a success. But the Gallant's struggles haven't come to an end. The next goal is to get Devin access to a medication that could help slow the atrophy. The drug called Rizdiplam isn't covered in BC for people with type 3 SMA. He's been rejected for the drug five times. The health ministry meeting Tuesday to discuss a sixth application on his behalf. They've been trying to get treatment for Devin since February 2019. The drug costs are astronomical. In other provinces, it can run upwards of $40,000 a month. But the Gallants will keep fighting for their son's access. It's insane when it's a life-saving treatment and to put a price tag on a child's life by not giving it to him because he walks for five steps. You know how hard it is for him? Devin has a long road to recovery ahead. Months of difficult physiotherapy, but he has overcome his first hurdle. Aaron MacArthur, Global News.
Getting help for an eating disorder has long been a challenge, and since the COVID-19 pandemic began, the demand for those services has only increased. It's Eating Disorder Awareness Week, and experts are hoping to shine a light on the illness, their devastating effects, and the challenge to find help. Eating disorders have the highest overall mortality rate of any mental illness, and one in 10 will not survive. And in every health authority, especially in the youth population, we've seen increases in eating disorders. And I think we're still trying to understand why, but certainly loss of inpatient, of in-person services, isolation, um, loss of school and usual activities that bring structure have all been um, important pieces to this pandemic. It's estimated that as many as 2.7 million Canadians have an eating disorder. Many of them are untreated. Coming up, Andrea Jin knows her jokes. Hey, I'm an immigrant. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> How the BC comedian is finding the funny in her own family's cultural history. But first, the lucky few who managed to grab some Boba Grizz gear. Ottawa police now say two people have been arrested at the trucker protests on Parliament Hill. A 37-year-old man was taken into custody yesterday, charged with carrying a weapon, while a 29-year-old was taken into custody today for mischief. Police say they have 13 active investigations right now, several of them being investigated by the hate crime unit. The investigation into the desecration of the National War Memorial is also progressing. Police also report a reduction in the number of people on site by a large margin. About 50 remain on Parliament Hill. Another 200 are gathered nearby. All right, we'll check in with Christy again. The S word back in the forecast. Yes, a lot of people will be saying mm -hmm. shovel. I need to find my shovel. <laughs> <laughs> I will be saying thank you because I love snow <laughs> so much. Chris, we talked about yesterday the name of this type of system or the slang term that we call it is an inside slider. Just wanted to show you exactly what it is. Basically, a ridge of high pressure sitting offshore, jet stream driving up and over it. Uh, different from when the jet stream protects us, this one actually has these systems right along it. So look at this system. It moves more of in a north to south direction across the province and into our region. It ushers in that cold air mass uh, or cold air as that uh, moisture pushes in. Now, we don't tend to get a lot of moisture with this type of scenario, and there will be some areas near the water that will see mostly just rain or just a wet snow so you won't see any accumulation so for metro vancouver quite a range zero to six centimeters is possible uh same for the east coast of vancouver island i'm really not expecting any in victoria the malahat though could get some two to five for the inland sections of vancouver island and for uh, the sunshine coast two to six out through the central and east fraser valley that's where i expect the majority of the snow northeastern parts of Va uh, vancouver island and along the house sound region significant snow across northern bc though that's really where the bulk of it is and it does shift down through southern bc interior regions but far less expected there again dropping the majority of it across the north and central coast regions but temperatures are going to warm up in the afternoon in some areas especially coastal regions will see a transition to rain or snow so as we
we talked about earlier, I am expecting an impact for the morning commute. In the afternoon, it's a bit iffy. It depends on that transition. There is a chance, though, the transition to rain may not occur to the evening hours, and that evening commute may be impacted. Don't forget, tomorrow's Groundhog Day. One of my favorite days. Not because it's Groundhog's Day, because it's my sister's day birthday, too. All right. <laughs> Prince George, beautiful scenery there today with blue sky across the province. Cold, but beautiful. All right, oh, thanks to Sheila for that one. Gorgeous blanket. And happy birthday to your, uh, to your sister as well. All right, it's a journey that's been five months in the making. Nearly 300 dogs and cats from Afghanistan landing at YVR tonight ready for a new life. The animals had to be left behind last August when people fled the country. As Krista Dow reports, some of the pets will now be reunited with their Afghan owners. Here we are at Keflavik Airport in Iceland. The runways are being plowed as we speak. It's being called Mission Possible, a gargantuan international rescue effort to save hundreds of animals stranded in Afghanistan. Heck of an amazing crew we've got here. I am so proud. The colossal Russian IL-76 departed Kabul on Sunday. It weighs 89 tons. And after fuel stops in Turkey and Iceland, it will touch down at YVR tonight. On board the plane, 131 cats and 154 dogs. The fact is that if they stayed behind in Afghanistan, they, they, would, they wouldn't live. So now we're at a place where um, we had no other choice but to bring them to uh, a place that they could be safe. Tensions in Afghanistan reaching a flashpoint last August as thousands fled when the U.S. withdrew forces from the country and the animals abandoned and helpless. When uh, the last troops left, uh, they um, had no choice but to let all the animals go on the tarmac. Uh, the world watched in absolute, absolute despair. Further complicating things, the U.S. banned the import of dogs due to fears of rabies. The change meant the animals would be welcomed into Canada instead. Once they land, they'll be temporarily housed at a massive facility at the airport. We have feeding teams, cleaning teams, walking teams. We have experienced handlers that will be coming and working with the dogs. We have behaviorists that are coming and, and assessing the dogs. About 30% will be reunited with their rightful owners. The rest will be put up for adoption, waiting patiently to meet their new guardians. Krista Dow, Global News. No shortage of adoptive families, I'm sure, for those dogs. Okay, Squires here. Uh, big news. Finally from the NFL. Well, I mean, this was a bit anticlimactic, wasn't it? Because there was rumors about it on Saturday and Sunday, but after 22 seasons, Tom Brady has decided he's gotten bored of winning. He leaves the NFL as its winningest ever quarterback, seven Super Bowls, 10 Super Bowl appearances, enough records and trophies to fill a rather large warehouse. What a career. And Stand up to racism, a local comedian who can laugh at her own immigrant experience and help others laugh too. A Lunar New Year limited edition sale attracted a lot of attention in Vancouver's Chinatown today. 
Customers lined up to get their hands on the Boba Grizz Capsule Collection, a limited edition selection of hoodies and t-shirts featuring, of course, the mascot of the former Vancouver Grizzlies NBA franchise holding Bubble Tea, also known as Bubba. Organizers say the collection celebrates the special bond between the Chinese community and the Grizzlies when the franchise was here in Vancouver. Proceeds from the one-per-customer sale benefit the Chinatown Storytelling Center. The funds are important for the center because you know, we just opened the Chinatown Storytelling Center and, um, you know, institutions like this are hard to support. Um, it, it, you know, the, the cultural institutions and... Um, but it's an important thing to do, so we're very happy to do it, but we need a lot of public support for it. The collection sold out quickly. The Canadian Chinese Youth Athletic Association is hoping to restock some items and offer them for sale on its website. Going down to the Storytelling Center is a great idea. Help you celebrate Lunar New Year. Okay. You know, sometimes, I was saying to someone the other day, it's yep. like the Vancouver Grizzlies were never here. It's like it was a dream. Yeah, that they were here, but they were here, and it's too bad they still aren't here. That's true. Because um, Memphis Grizzlies are a good team now. It could have been us. Uh, last night the Canucks beat the Blackhawks. Tonight they have a much tougher team in Nashville, and they have to play Nashville just a day later after playing in Chicago. So this is not an easy task for the Vancouver Canucks, but they have been overcoming a lot under Bruce Boudreau. Tonight is the last game before the All-Star break. After this one, the Canucks won't have to play until next Tuesday against Arizona. In fact, six of Vancouver's next seven games are at Rogers Arena. So let's go to Nashville, where the Canucks score first. Bad pass by Nashville. Puck turned over to neutral zone. Yuho Lamico, Matthew Highmore scores. Matt Highmore off the one nothing and the Canucks for the Canucks in Nashville. Then they just had a, just over a minute of bad hockey. And the power play Ryan Johansson loose down the right side as the Canucks power play ends and he scores against a team he probably cheered they for as a kid. That makes it one one. Here's the shot. This is a nice deflection by Philip Forsberg just over a minute later to give Nashville the, the right two one lead. But Bit of a surprise shot from Oliver Ekman Larson. Just turns and fires. And it goes in. Larson just lets it go. Look at this flutter. It's the old thing, just shoot it on the net. That is a bit of a knuckleball there. 2-2 after one. Second period. Forsberg's feeling it. And the team with the Colonel Mustard uniforms are up 3-2. Power play, one-timer, perfect shot. Oliver Ekman Larson scored. And he also gets bounced here. Die, yeah. But he's okay. And it's 3-2 Nashville after two. Uh, 12 years ago, Eric Stahl was part of the gold medal winning hockey team for the men at the Vancouver Olympics. He'll be the captain when he leads a less famous collection of Canadians to the Olympic hockey tournament this year. He was named the captain today, which uh, makes sense. He's the most accomplished player Canada has. He was with Montreal when they surprisingly went to the Stanley Cup final last year. Winning gold won't be easy this time, but he likes the guys that Canada has gathered around him in lieu of the NHL not going. Uh, being here with these guys, it's, it's uh, just a chance to um, continue to develop our chemistry and uh, for us to be together here in Davos, getting prepared is is great. It's been uh, it's been a treat and a lot of fun to get to know these guys and uh, practice hard and just prepare for uh, you know what's going to uh, come up uh, here in Beijing and um, we're excited about it.
I'm going to show you this from last night. This is we in Columbus. James Richardson, Hayden, oh, yes. pretty impressive. Cooper oh, Denny. Remember that kid's name. Maybe he'll be in the NHL one day. And you can say, I saw him do that when he was just 10 years old on the news hour. Well, maybe Tom Brady's man cave is just too full of trophies to keep on playing. Maybe he's got no more room because today he officially retired from the NHL, packing it in after 22 years on the job. 20 with New England, two with Tampa. All of the numbers and records and accolades he's collected over two decades. The most impressive number might be that he has won more Super Bowls himself than any NFL franchise has won. Brady has seven. New England and Pittsburgh are tied for second with six. Not bad for a guy who was a sixth round draft pick, a guy who most scouts thought wouldn't be much more than a backup quarterback. And how many other 44-year-old pro athletes can say they retired before they lost their skills? This past season, Brady threw for more yards than he's ever thrown before. 43 touchdown passes, second most in his career. So it's not like he was just hanging around. This guy could have played next season and still been a top quarterback. He leaves with not only seven Super Bowls, but five Super Bowl MVP awards, three NFL MVP awards, ten big NFL records, including... Most quarterback wins, completions, yards, touchdown passes. They should actually bend the Pro Football Hall of Fame rules and put him in right away. Or just make the area in his house where all his trophies are, make that part of the Hall of Fame. Brian Flores won eight of the last nine games as head coach of the Miami Dolphins this regular season. And still he was surprisingly fired. A lot of people thought he would get hired by another team for sure, but he hasn't yet. And now he is suing the NFL the Miami Dolphins, the New York Giants, and the Denver Broncos, who interviewed him but didn't hire him, alleging discrimination. He also alleges that Miami owner Stephen Ross offered him a $100,000 bonus per game to lose on purpose in 2019 in order for the Dolphins to get a higher draft pick. All three teams being sued are denying Flores' allegations. There you go. Amazing. All right, thanks very much, Squire. A comedian helping others laugh through the pandemic. That's next. The pandemic certainly hasn't been easy for stand-up comedians. Most venues are closed and stage time is scarce. But Andrea Jin has found success slowly building her confidence and her career after emigrating from China as a child. Jay Durant has her story in This Is BC. Hi, I'm an immigrant. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> Thank you, because I'm not leaving. So. For the past five years, Andrea Jin has been fine-tuning her show, and it paid off this past year. She released an album, got a number of TV tapings, and was one of the Just for Laughs new faces of comedy. I don't know what's going on at Pizza Hut, but all the calls are going to Texas. All the ladies are like, howdy. That's... Jin was 10 years old when she moved to Vancouver from Shanghai with her family, and remembers suddenly having to learn the differences with Canadian culture. Everyone's obsessed with coffee. <laughs> 
Could that report be any later? She turned to pop culture to learn English, practicing by imitating lines from friends. I would talk like Chandler, you know, the way where he's like, can you be any more? Could I be more sorry? <laughs> Everyone was very annoyed at me for doing it. Setting on a style was tough at the start, but things changed after she watched a Ronnie Cheng show. Because I want my kids to take other people's money, obviously. <laughs> It convinced Jin that it was okay to incorporate her own culture and experiences into her routine. We always have to have 34 bags of rice at home. That's the number that makes us feel safe, okay? I'm not so scared to be myself and talk about the things I actually want to talk about, which is, I come from an immigrant family. I, my grandparents are crazy. Don't go to the bulk food store if you've ever had a communist dictator. <laughs> Her family has been a good source of material and support. There's still a language barrier for them. They don't get the jokes, but they still go to the shows. They're basically just there to fill a seat and clap when they're supposed to. When they're looking around, they're like, oh, everyone's clapping. Okay, I'll clap too. Jin has been writing more and hoping to launch a podcast. I'm going to New York in a couple weeks. And Opportunities have been limited for many comedians, but she just had her biggest year yet. I'm not going to stop because uh, I've come this far and... I've sold my family on it, finally. You're like a white person, you don't know how racism feels. Here's you can, how you can experience it. You just bring your bike onto the SkyTrain. <laughs> Jay Durant, Global News. <laughs> well, if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, just email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. She's funny, got a bright future for sure. Okay, last word on weather with the uh, snow in the forecast, Christy. Thanks, Chris. So we are expecting it to impact the morning commute. Maybe not the early morning, but certainly sort of 7 a.m. on. And then in the afternoon, it'll be iffy whether we see that transition to rain. So be on standby for it impacting the afternoon commute also. And tomorrow's Groundhog Day, so uh, hopefully he doesn't see his shadow. I always get confused which way it goes. <laughs> Good night, everyone.